Thank you. It's really uh, good to be back at Burlington. It's been a couple of years, I think. Uh, so it's great to see you and to be here this morning. As you might have gathered from um, my earlier comments and uh, the little slideshow you saw, I travel quite a lot. And I use the train probably more than I go by car. And then some interesting things happen when you travel by train. And it was a few weeks ago, I was coming back from Blackburn. That's somewhere up north. For those of you who don't know the, the geography of the country, it's sort of above Manchester before you get to um, Blackpool. And uh, I, was in the, I came to the train station and I uh, had a little while to wait, so I sat down on a bench. And the other end of the bench, there was a young lady... And she was doing something somewhat strange. She had one of those lint rollers. And she was wiping it up and down her legs, clearing, I suppose, hair and whatever else was on her leggings. As if that wasn't strange enough, she then opened her suitcase that was on the ground and she... uh, Uh, put the lint brush inside and she got out a little whatever it was and she started to apply all her makeup. When she'd applied her makeup, not so unusual, you see people doing that on the train, on the tube in London, so she put that back in the case and she then got out a, 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 a bottle of perfume and she began to spray some perfume round her neck. Still not that strange, you might suppose. She put the perfume back in the suitcase and then she took out her deodorant. And I kind of wondered what was going to come next, but she simply put her arms up and sprayed under her arms through her clothes. Not the average sight, but it certainly provided a distinctive aroma on the station platform and in the carriage afterwards. We all know what it's like when someone walks into a room and uh, when they leave, they leave behind them their distinctive perfumed or aftershave smell. Don't try to find it on me this afternoon, this morning when we go through for coffee. It's uh, uh, also possible, isn't it, for that some people come into the room and it's not so much their perfume but their personality that suddenly takes over, it dominates everything. And it uh, is very distinctive and it draws our attention and it's difficult to be yourself because they are so dominant in the room. It's the sheer force of their personality, not so much the odour. Not to put too fine a point on it, and certainly not to offend you this morning, but quite honestly, you people here at Burlington smell. You smell. Oh, yes, you do, and you are meant to. We all smell. I smell. Smelling, being smelling, uh, having an odour is part of parcel of life. I'm not just talking now about the biological necessities of life. 
smell is actually more of a perception than anything else. We have little odorants in our, br- in our nose that somehow pick up on a fragrance and send a message to our brain. It's actually quite clever because the brain can process that information and identify the smell. If there's a constant odour in the room, our brain starts to perceive it as decreasing even though the odour remains constant. So over time, that odour appears to fade. Whatever the smell It's called sensory adaptation, apparently. And we all are intended to smell, to have a distinctive aroma. It's not so much what we wear or that comes from us, it's who we are, according to Paul here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, a metaphor that he is using to describe something that is true of every Christian, whether they have chosen to be smelly or not. It's a graphic way that he uses to give us a touch of reality and to call us to action. If you have your Bible open, it's chapter 2, of 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, or else it's on the screen. Everywhere we go, people breathe in the exquisite fragrance. Because of Christ, we give of a sweet scent rising to God, which is recognized by those on the way to salvation. An adoma, or redolent with life. But those on the way to destruction treat us more like the stench from a rotten, rotting corpse. It's not, not a terribly delightful way of ending such a deeply challenging piece of text. So much, so important is this, and so awesome is this, that Paul ends the chapter with a startling question. He says, Who is sufficient for these things? Who of us can possibly live up to the aroma that we already are? It's not as simple as spending a fortune on the latest fragrance or as working up a sweat that is ultimately offensive to those who smell it, even if it is in the cause of the gospel. No, nobody is either competent or naturally endowed with this great fragrance that Paul describes, but we have it. We smell. This, Paul makes clear, is a commission, a calling, a responsibility. So if we already are, how do we become more so, I suppose, is a key question. If we were to open our suitcase, what would we need to take out of the suitcase in order to develop the perfume of our lives? Well, on the one hand, it's absolutely nothing. 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 
could stop there or go home. We are the aroma, says Paul, of Christ, says Paul, to God. It's his aroma, it's our birthright, or more accurately, our new birthright. We have it. It's all bound up in being indwelt and, and uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul says this. He says, For no, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through the, uh, him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. He uses this loaded expression, yes, as part of his argument that he can be trusted even if on that occasion he had altered his plans, his travel plans to visit them. But it's also a reassurance. Our faith in Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit is the beginning of what God has made possible. We have this commission, this calling this responsibility. We don't have to hear any more about it. It is ours to smell. We've been reconciled to God. We've been resourced to live by the Holy Spirit. We're ready for eternity. We are the aroma of Christ to God. But it's not that simple, is it? Because life gets in the way. Life deals with us all sorts of things that kind of smothers the smell, smothers our passions, smothers our ability to deal with the things that God has called us and made us responsible for. So it is worth delving into the bookcase, suitcase, bookcase, maybe, into the suitcase of God's provision to draw upon some resources that will enhance and enrich our lives so that they smell stronger. Increase the perfume, if you like. This fragrance, for Jewish people reading these words, would have had a resonance with the scent of the burnt offerings, Paul and his Jewish readers would be well aware of all of that, and he's drawing on that image, possibly. The offerings are described in the Old Testament as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Psalmist takes this to another level with the, uh, his reference to prayer. May my prayer, he says in Psalm 141, be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. I think this thing is at Simon's height. Just see if I can put it up without it falling over. That's better. One writer describes these verses, incense affects the heart of God, it moves him, and everything, anything that moves God moves us as well. Every time we pray in honesty and humility, we become more like him, and the fragrance of our words wafts through the throne room. That's a really significant and slightly different way of understanding prayer, isn't it? Not so much as us asking God for this and that and all the next things, 
but as actually coming to him in honesty and humility and those words being like incense because we're actually attuning ourselves to God rather than asking God to do something for us. But I don't think that's what Paul was talking about in this chapter, so we'll leave that one there. This part of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, these first two chapters, are describing a time in Paul's life that was particularly difficult. In fact, it's possible that Paul was on the verge of, if he had not already had, a nervous breakdown. He was certainly deeply, deeply distressed. Chapter 1 and verse 8 We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. I don't know whether Paul was feeling suicidal, but it certainly rings a bit like that, doesn't it? You see, he had a passion for the churches that he planted. And the church in Corinth was concerning him so very deeply it affected everything about him. He even found it difficult to settle to the task he had in hand. He speaks of arriving in this coastal town of Troas. Um, and it, this is a town with an artificial harbour. It was a great place and it had all the potential for revival. All the potential for people all over the town, all over the city, turning to Christ. Paul the preacher in his element. Paul the preacher, desperate to see people come to faith. But instead he's bothered. He's worried. He's deeply disturbed. Verse 13, he talks about having no peace of mind. I doubt there's anyone in the room who hasn't had moments or even days when something in their life has caused them to feel something like that. Well, I'd already prepared this, uh, this talk when I picked up on Tuesday, or Wednesday, I think it was, Wednesday morning, uh, a tweet linking to the podcast of last Sunday's sermon. If you were here, you may remember, or if you've listened to the podcast, really recommend you do. Simon was speaking about the day, the time when Elijah was deeply depressed. Here in this story, we have another example of the backstory that Simon referred to right the way, is right through the way through Scripture. So the backstory to Paul's ministry at this time and the opening chapters of this letter is this overwhelming sense of despair. And the backstory to that is the unseemly things that have been happening in the congregation in Corinth that Titus had gone to try and help resolve. So here we have Paul in much the same state as Elijah, where the text literally means, I had no relief in my spirit. He's in a dark, dark place, mentally, in his mind. It's like a black hole. 
You can't really see how you're going to get out of it, even though you seem to know the way out of it. And it just holds on to you, sometimes for a day, sometimes for a little bit longer, and sometimes for quite a long time. Even this morning, I picked up an article written by Jeff Lucas. You know Jeff Lucas, Spring Harvest fame? Where he had battled with depression for a year. See, this is reality. Churches had been planted and pastored and left to continue their ministry. And Paul, the father figure, is desperate feeling desperate because of what's happened in Corinth. So instead of setting sail from Troas, which would be the normal, natural thing to do, he went round the landway towards Philippi. Perhaps he was hoping for Titus to meet him on the way. He left behind all of the opportunity and all that was beginning to happen because of how he felt how his human emotions disrupted all everything he was about. So he changed his travel plans. His story is impacted by what we today would be calling mental health issues. I don't know if you saw the three-part series, The Driver, earlier in this autumn. Got a bit violent, didn't it? But in that, uh, field, that uh, three-part series, David Morrissey is a taxi driver, Vince. He goes to his doctor because he feels like he's suffering from some kind of depression. He's estranged from his son, there's money difficulties, he's not getting on so well with his wife, and it's just all getting too much. The doctor tells him, you scored 14 You need to score 15 before I can comfortably prescribe medication. It's almost the opening scene of the the whole three-part series. So he says, so what are you saying? Am I one point short of depression? Maybe. Maybe a lot of us have been one, two, three, four points short of genuinely real depression medically. Fact is, they tell us that one in four people will experience depression, mental health issues in the course of every year. That's a quarter of the congregation. We'll take it with the lesser numbers after everyone's gone out <laughs> for Sunday school, It'll make us feel a little bit easier. It's a pretty harsh situation we are in in our country. Anxiety, depression, all the other multiple aspects of um, mental health issues. The most common mental disorders in Britain are anxiety and depression. Now, I'm not an expert. Neither am I able to bring you solutions uh, this morning. This talk won't bring you the answer Simon's message last week gave a prescription which was, would be very useful to you if that's where you are at the moment. But it's not the answer, not the complete answer. I do wonder whether we can take some comfort from the fact that these great men of God, Elijah, the Apostle Paul, 
and even Jeff Lucas experience these realities in their lives. We are not immune. It doesn't make us any less Christian. Catherine Welby-Roberts is the daughter of the Archbishop of Canterbury. She not only suffers from anxiety disorder, but she writes about her experience in a blog and often in, in articles these days. This is what she wrote from her experience. I want churches to be places where people with real problems, particularly those pertaining to mental health, can come and know it's safe to talk. I won't be judged. I won't be given easy answers. I won't just say, well, we'll pray for you and it'll all be all right, because it won't, normally. You might want to Google Jeff Lucas's article. I think he gives five things never to say to someone suffering from depression. What I thought this morning we could do, because this passage is revealing this about Paul in a way that I've not heard preached before ever in my whole 50, 50, what am I? Anyway, mid-50s, years. And yet it's there, it's clear. What I thought we'd do is see, well, if Paul's saying that in one verse, why is he saying this in the other? Because in the other uh, verse, he's talking about how in Christ, God leads us from place to place in one perpetual victory parade. How can he be feeling so desperate one moment and then say that in the next moment? There's a mismatch, isn't there? There's a, a contrast. Is he deluded, self-deluded, living in a dreamland? Is he able to flip from one emotional experience to the next? Or has he discovered a valuable nugget of truth that actually, if we could hold on to it, no matter how we feel, at least we know the truth? I mean, know what Jesus said, the truth will set us free, just might take some time. There's a way in which Paul does this in his writings anyway. He shifts from the reality of human experience to the reality of spiritual experience. Or from what you have, you're going through on earth to what you are in, in the, Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, in the heavenlies. And life is about bringing the two together until Christ comes. And they all come together. So he takes a contemporary image in the memory of his early readers and stamps it on our lives as Christians, as believers. He talks about this triumphal procession, this perpetual victory parade. And it's like he's saying to us all this morning, doesn't matter what's going on in your head right now, what's going on in your life that you'll go back to after you leave here, that's all reality, but there's another reality. And that other reality is that you are in a triumphal procession. The victory's already been won. So what was he thinking of? I want you to try and grasp the, the metaphor, the story behind the story, if you like. And, and as I was preparing this, I suddenly remembered reading Robert Harris's book, Lustrum. I don't know if you've ever read that historical novel. And this is what he said, and I put it with some images um, as, he, as he describes it in this chapter. 
On the second day, his birthday, Pompey, the triumphal, uh, his birthday, on the second day of Pompey's birthday, the triumphal parade proper began with the prisoners he'd brought back from from the east. First the army commanders, then the officials of Mithridates' household, then a group of captured pirate chiefs, then the king of the Jews, followed by the king of Armenia with his wife and son. And finally, as the highlight of this part of the procession, seven of Mithridates' children and one of his sisters. The thousands of Romans in the forum and the circus jeered and flung lamps of mud and earth at them, so, so much so that by the time they finally stumbled down the Via Sacra towards the Casa, they looked like clay figures come to life. There they were made to wait beneath the gaze of the Carnifex and his assistants, trembling at the thought of their fates while the distant roars from the direction of the triumphal gate signaled that at last their conqueror had re- entered the city. Cicero wanted, waited too with the rest of his colleagues outside the Senate House. I was on the opposite side of the forum, and as the parade passed between us, I kept losing sight of him amid all the torrent, torrent of glory. There were wagons with gaudy tableau depicting each of the nations Pompey had subdued, Albania, Syria, Palestine, Arabia, and so forth followed by some of the 800 heavy bronze ramming beaks of the pirate ships he had captured, and the glittering heaps of armor and shields and swords he had seized from Mithridates' armies. Behind all this tramped Pompey's soldiers, chanting baldy verses about their commander. And then at last Pompey came himself into the forum, riding in his jewel-studded chariot, wearing a purple toga embroidered with golden stars, and of course the cloak of Alexander. Clinging onto the platform behind him was the slave traditionally charged with intoning in his ear that he was only human. Did not envy that poor fellow his job. And he was clearly getting on Pompey's nerves because the moment the charioteer pulled the horses up outside the Cassia and the parade came to a halt, Pompey pushed him roughly off the platform and turned his broad red-painted face to, to address the muddy apparitions of the prisoners. I, Pompey the Great... Conqueror of 324 nations, having been granted the power of life and death by the Senate and the people of Rome, do hereby declare that you, as vassals of the Roman Empire, shall immediately, he paused, be granted a full pardon and set free to return to the lands of your birth. Go and tell the world of my mercy. Go and tell the world. Of my mercy. Amazing mixture of celebration, glory, and in this particular story, mercy. For Paul, in the mix of this idea of being the aroma of Christ, it's the idea that you're part of a great triumphal procession, a procession of the conquering king of kings leading his captives to salvation, having experienced but to experience grace and mercy. And we who have received his grace and mercy go to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. That's all right in history. We don't kind of do that sort of thing now, not on such a grand scale, Or do we? 
There is an annual event that at least in part mirrors such a Roman triumph. It's a celebration. It's held in June. It involves over 1,400 officers and men on parade together with 200 horses. Over 400 musicians from 10 bands and corps of drums march and play as one. Some 113 words of command are given by the officer in command of the parade, which extends from Buckingham Palace along the Mall to Horse Guards Parade, Whitehall, and then back, uh, Horse Guards Parade, Whitehall, then back again. It's spectacular. The British do this pageantry well with precision, a ceremony that many would argue is the best in the world. So once you get the feeling that you're in the victory parade, however you feel and whatever it's like, I wanted to show you the entire trooping of the colour. But it takes an hour and a half. And your dinner will burn. Or whatever. So I've got... um, I've got got it in a minute and a half. love the idea of the Queen moving so fast. <laughs> but where would you want to be in all of that? In the stands, as a proud parent looking on, on a horseback, in one of the groups marching so far, so in such straight lines and all the rest of it, a musician, or even in charge, a procession, a display that's triumphal, We're part of one. It's happening right now. He came into the world 
And he conquered sin and death and hell. And triumphantly he will march the redeemed troops into eternal glory. And you and I will be behind him in his train as those who were with him in the battle. We don't have to win every little struggle along the way. It's enough to know that we'll triumph in the end. It's enough to know that we'll be there as part of the marching army, part of the lieutenants of Christ in the day when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. So writes one commentator. We're in that march, ready to roll into glory. So reach out into the suitcase again. Find the example in this chapter that is a bottle of perfume that enables us a little more to apply all this to our lives. One molecule of the aroma, as it were, that we can spread as being in this victory parade. For despite his state of mind, Paul preaches his good news message all, at all times. He holds on to this amazing triumph in order to offer mercy. And in this chapter, we started with it. He offers, he suggests, he teaches the value of forgiveness. There is nothing more powerful, nothing more restorative that a Christian can offer than the forgiveness that, they, that we have already received. Paul's referring here back to a matter of church discipline. It's not often used like this today, but in those times, in those early church days, it was applied. A church discipline, someone who is sent out from the church, sent away from the church because of their behavior, it was not motivated by judgment or by punishment, but motivated by love and the hope of being able to offer forgiveness. Verses 5 through to 11. Paul is able to say, anyone you forgive, I'll forgive. He takes it another stage further. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. So here's the problem. There's always the danger when we carry an unforgiving spirit that we're in danger of Satan outwitting us, ruining our lives. There's nothing more likely to cause lasting div- damage to an individual, to a family, or even a whole church where there is a tendency towards being unforgiving. So if we're trooping the colour marching in this victory parade, one of the most powerful ways of demonstrating that in our lives today is by being able to offer forgiveness. To stand tall and extend the hand of grace. To bow low and act in mercy. And to hold out the hand And speak with sincerity from our heart as one sent from God, verse 17, and offer forgiveness. Perhaps there's someone in this place you've never forgiven. 
for something that happened, oh, I don't know how long ago. Perhaps it's a family member. I just keep getting astonished by the number of families where people don't speak to other members of the families because, family because something happened so long ago. Christians. Not offering forgiveness. Holding a grudge. It's only one person that gets, suffers really from that. It's the person who's holding the grudge who won't offer the forgiveness. It can be true in the workplace as well. And I've seen it powerfully work in a meeting where you're a participant, where someone takes exception. I chair what's called an interim executive board at the moment in a school that's in, been in difficulties, and I keep calling one of the people on the board the wrong name. And last meeting but, what, last meeting but one, she, she got really, really kind of cross. And I could have thought, you stupid woman, I'm just getting your name wrong in the midst of the flow of the conversation. But I did try to offer forgiveness. And then I wrote her name on a little bit of paper for the last meeting so I never forgot it. (laughs) And she thanked me at the end, which was rather nice. Forgiveness. It's a gift that we've all received. It's a gift that we all must give. We live in a world that's marked by broken relationships, bitter divisions, emotionally scarred people. And sometimes, and let me say this really carefully in the light of what I've said earlier, just sometimes that can be the cause of distress, despair and depression. There are many other reasons why people fall into those areas of need. But we are troopers. We're on the victory march. However much we might feel today in a bad place, we can always, always offer and spread the aroma of forgiveness. Do you remember Joseph of amazing Technicolor um, fame? His, thank you, his brothers threw him in a pit and sold him as a slave. And a few decades later, after he'd suffered injustice and imprisonment, he's the mastermind of an economic recovery. Not a bad idea. And he has a visitation from these self-same brothers who don't recognize him. And he gives them grain. Sends them away. There's more to the story, but then they come back again. And this time, on the way, it says very clearly, I wonder if we're, they're saying to each other, I wonder if we're suffering because of how we treated our brother. They made some connections. Joseph didn't hear that. But what he did as they came to him was clear the room of all the officials and he was reunited with his brothers. He offered them total forgiveness. They are brought back together, reconciled, because of forgiveness. You intended to harm me, he said. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He was in a victory parade, wasn't he? He was trooping the colour. It's in our new nature. 
And I think this passage sums up or illustrates what Paul said in Philippians, where he said, I delight in all these things, for when I'm weak, I'm strong. I feel weak, Paul would say. I feel depressed, Paul might say. I'm almost about to give up, Paul did say. But he still knew that he was in the parade. He still knew that he'd received forgiveness and he must offer forgiveness. Because forgiveness is not so much dependence upon me, but Christ. And we pray it, don't we, when you pray the Lord's Prayer. I don't know if you do that here very often. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Kind of no excuse, is there? It's what's expected of us by our commander-in-chief as we march. So this morning, I'm not minimizing the reality of how you may feel emotionally or what your mental health needs and circumstances might be. But if you're a believer this morning, just grasp hold of this, this one thing. You are actually in a victory parade. You actually have received God's love and forgiveness. And maybe, just maybe, you can offer forgiveness and it'll be a support and help to you in your experience in life. And of course, if that applies to you and you need some support, you need some prayer, you need someone just to draw alongside you, then that we're here for you. We, we're here for that. You need to make yourself known to us before you go home. And for the rest of us, stand up and march. Oh dear. Stand up and march. On the spot if you like. We're going to sing in a moment. March. Smell. Speak up. Speak out. Offer forgiveness. Sometime this week, offer someone forgiveness. Most likely it will surprise them. Most likely it will be reconciling in some way. I've got down here, I need to say one more thing. I think we should be praying more for those who are feeling especially fragile and vulnerable. Those for whom the victory parade must seem so distant, all they can hear are the tramps of the boots of Isis and the risk that it is to their own life and well-being. For those living in fear and in, in camps, not knowing what the future holds, we pray that they will hold on to God and that somehow they'll just see a glimpse of that victory parade and that God will keep them. Keep them in the hollow of his hands despite how desperate, how desolate, however they might be feeling. We pray this in Jesus' name for them and for us, as we sing, as we share together in this worship song that reminds us 
that you are with us even when the waves of life seem so great.